Welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Rob Davio, Chief Restoration Officer for Restoration Games, the company that specializes in bringing some of your out-of-the-print favorites back to life. Rob, welcome to the binge. How you doing? I'm doing great. That was a hell of an intro, man. I'm like excited to see who's on this show after hearing that. And then you find out it's you. And it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, welcome, welcome to the binge. I, I have been wanting to have you on this show for quite some time. So thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I tell you this whole concept of restoring kind of like that car from the backyard, that rust bucket back there, bringing it back to life. And you guys do that with board games, which I think is just such a cool, cool idea. It is. I wish I could say it was my idea, but it was not my idea. So how how did this start? Like who whose idea was it? Yeah. Justin Jacobson, who's my the co-owner and, and my business partner. I, uh, after leaving Hasbro, and I know we're going to talk about that yeah. at some point, I was and still am an independent board game designer. So I was making Pandemic Legacy and a bunch of games. And Justin was my lawyer. <laughs> yeah, these little tiny things, little craft games. I'm still surprised they sold any. But um, Justin was and still is also my lawyer. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, we had met at Gen Con. He had done a seminar on legal advice for designers, which my wife went to and got his card. And he became my lawyer. And he just reached out and said, I want to start a publisher. He was a, like, I want to sell my law practice and become a publisher. And I was like, okay. He goes, I want you part of it. I said, this sounds like a horrible idea. I want no part of it. There's too many publishers. And then he pitched the restoration idea. He goes, we only take old games that are out of print and we restore them. We don't reprint them. We sort of say if they were released today, how would they be? And I said, I'm in. I'm in. This sounds great. And um, it also enables me to make my own independent games and sell them to other publishers without any conflict of interest. Um, although more and more of my time is being spent with restoration these days, I kind of leveled up to management. There's people working for me and I talk about business decisions, but I'm still at heart a designer. Oh, that's amazing. So I want to like kind of rewind the record back here uh, to when you first, so you started out at Hasbro, right? Yeah. Or was it even 25 years ago, 1998. Oh my gosh. Wow. We're coming what was up that like? 25 years. Uh, different time, different place. Like I really liked yeah. it. And I, there were a couple things like I, um, I realized my whole life I was sort of leading up to be a game designer at some point. Could have been board games, role-playing, video games, like my hobbies, my interests, the way I thought about things. And I sort of fell into this job at Hasbro by answering an ad in the classified section of the newspaper, like actual printed newspaper. No way. I was in advertising. I didn't like the agency I was working for. I was going to freelance. I wanted to get into, I thought role-playing games more because I was a writer more at the time. Yep. And, uh, I'm like, I need some clients as a freelancer, games or otherwise. I didn't think games. I thought like I need advertising, marketing, whatever I want to do. And I just saw like Parker Brothers is hiring copywriters up. And then I'm like, well, sure. I don't want to be a copywriter at a game company. I want to be a game designer, but I'll throw my hat in the ring. And then very long story. We only have half an hour. I ended up as a game designer. From there, about a year and a half later, they consolidated the Milton Bradley plant in Western Massachusetts, where I moved and still am today. And then 12, 11 years later, after that, in 2011, the company consolidated again at corporate headquarters in Rhode Island. And my wife and I both worked for Hasbro and we tried to commute and go back and forth. 
and still with kids and it just wasn't working. And so we left and I started my own company in 2012. So there's two things I want to really unpack out of that. One is yeah. what, what was your first game that you did when you're at Hasbro? What was the first one you designed? I walked in on the first day and there were, there were two games assigned to me. One was Looney Tunes Monopoly. Actually, they would say Monopoly Looney Tunes edition. Yeah. And while that sounds like ugh, yet another Monopoly in 1998, Hasbro wasn't doing all those monopolies. There was there were knockoff companies doing, but they had done Monopoly Star Wars edition yep. in 97 for the 20th anniversary of Star Wars. And it had just hit big. And they're like, oh, we can just do licenses on Monopoly. So that was like a brand new thought. So I had to do Monopoly Looney Tunes edition. And then the Bill Clinton impeachment Monica Lewinsky trial was going on. Mm. And there had been a game called scruples which had been out in the 80s that they said we can update and put out for to sort of capitalize on this but it was a big company and they were in the process of hiring a lot of people we didn't we did it but we didn't do it fast enough to capitalize by the time it came out that moment had passed um this was part of the reason justin knew my past that he wanted me to be the creative director because a lot of my time at hasbro is hey here's a game that came out 10 years ago make it better Here's yeah. the game of life. We haven't really looked at in 8, 10, 12 years. How can we tweak the gameplay? How can we make Battleship a card game? So a lot of what I've done in my career is taking an idea for a game and saying, oh, I, I see how this could be better. I see this could be modernized or twisted. Um, so those were the the two I did. And I ended up on my very first day writing, opening up a Word doc and making a little template of, okay, here's standard Monopoly. So you got Mediterranean, Baltic, Vermont, yeah. Oriental, Connecticut, blah, blah, blah. Here are the spaces, here are the cards, and then here's the license version, and currency is this, and houses are this. And it was sort of just a, a template. Yeah. And when I left Hasbro in 2012, that was still being used, that document, whenever someone's like, oh, I need to do a license monopoly. And there, it just floated around the office, and everyone had their copy of that template. But it was my first day. I was like, no one knew how to do a license monopoly, so I defined how to do it. And how quick did that become? Because I, I got to think that once you kind of set that template out, uh, it's very cookie cutterish, right? Like you're just literally just reskinning name your it license onto the game, right? It mostly it's just a graphic refresh. I yeah. I think I said special rule or twist that makes this different from Monopoly. Because I even though I was a designer for one day, I'm like, why do you just want to repaint Monopoly? There has to be some reason to buy it. I was wrong. People will just buy it for the license because they want to give it as a gift to a nephew or a grandkid or yeah. at a birthday party. But as a game designer and game fan, I'm like, why would you want two of the same thing that play the same with different pictures on it? So I had something which just said special rule or twist that makes this game different from other monopolies. And I think I said, if you roll doubles, instead of rolling again, you could do something. And depending if it was double ones, twos or sixes, like some sort of wacky Looney Tunes mm. thing happened. Um, yeah, you went and looked at the game. I'm probably wrong, but that's, you know, because in 25 years, it was something like that. And then I had to do a Monopoly Lord of the Rings. And it was whenever you rolled doubles and addition rolling again, there was a ring that started on go and it went around. And if it ever got to the last space, which was Mount Doom, the game instantly ended. Whoever had the most, whatever. Oh, that's money cool. Was, one. So I put a timer on it. So just little things to make the game feel, feel different. It's a little icing, so to speak, right? A little icing. And I'm pretty sure that got dropped pretty quickly when they <laughs> just marketing and has was like, why are we doing this extra stuff? Just put different pictures on it. 
Yeah, no kidding. And then, and the other question I was going to ask is, you said both your wife and you worked at Hasbro. Did you meet her at Hasbro, or did you? We just... did when I when I moved okay. out here. When I started, I I was married to a different person and okay. uh, had kids, and then got divorced, and then uh, years later, so no shenanigans or anything. Um, my wife started at Hasbro, like my, my now wife, and she's in graphics, and I'm in game design, so I make it, and she makes it look good. And we just got along and we worked well together and then, you know, eventually started dating and, and got married. And actually yeah. our wedding was the week Hasbro was moving to Rhode Island. So we were either not taking the move, getting married and both being out of work, or we were taking the offer for the move um, and then being in Rhode Island. But my kids were still here because she mm-hmm. custody with my ex-wife. So that's why it was a whole back and forth thing and didn't sure. just move with the family. And then when we left Hasbro, she ended up working at Yankee Candle, which is sort of in this Western Massachusetts region. Well, I got my company started, sort of just carried me until I could get some games up and running. And then I got some things going well. So I said, you don't really need to work at Yankee Candle, at least short term. Why don't we work together? And right around that time, restoration started. Wow. And so I was like, you know, Justin said, do you have anyone who can help with graphics and files and factories? I was like, yes, my wife, this is what she does. Oh, so you pull her into the company as well then? Pull her into the company. So we work together. Oh, wow. yeah. So I'm the very beginning of the pipeline and she's the very end. Oh, wow. And now I know I'm jumping all over the place here, but there's so much to kind of unpack. So uh, pandemic years of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Pandemic legacy. How did that kind of all come about? Uh, well, I had near the end of my time at Hasbro come up with a legacy idea and um, tried to apply it to Clue and that didn't work. And so then did the, the the pitch of my lifetime and got him to agree to it for risk legacy. And that game died along the way, like four times. And I found ways to bring it back to life. And I knew it was, it had a potential to be different and big and exciting. You know, I Mm -hmm. said, this is either going to be huge or a flop. There's no middle ground for this idea. And it happened to come out when I was working in Rhode Island, but I knew it, okay, this isn't working. I'm going to have to leave and start my own company. So it's just this wonderful calling card as I was leaving Hasbro to say like, I did that thing last year. I had done a whole bunch of other stuff, but that's something that like the Gen Con crowd would know. It's big, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, I don't know how much it sold because I don't have any visibility to it. I don't know any piece of it, but it, it, it got attention is what it got. Um, And so I was just going around Gen Con in 2013, 14, 13, let's say 13. Yes. And uh, about a year after I'd left Hasbro, I was just, hey, I'm a designer. I don't have anything to show, but I do freelance. I do editing. You know, I'm still working up ideas or maybe I had like one idea to show. Like I spent a lot of my first year consulting back to Hasbro and didn't have time to do my own games. And so I was just mostly offering services and making connections and uh someone at z-man game said hey matt leacock's looking for you it's like is he here it's like no he's not here but someone he asked someone for your contact i'm like okay cool i'll get in touch with him Mm -hmm. got home completely forgot about it walked by a pandemic on a shelf i'm like i should reach out and find matt and i like found him on twitter and he emailed me and um asked if i wanted to do a pandemic legacy and i was like yeah i do and in my head i thought it's not going to work as a cooperative and i don't know and i had i didn't really understand how legacy games worked and didn't write done one and a half then i was working on another one yeah and we we just worked well together we started talking we he had the beginnings of an idea and we did some structure and we did the whole thing in about 13 months like oh wow it was august no september 2013 to october of 2014 oh man yeah that game is out on uh i i'm I'm part of a meetup group and 
Well, there's a group that uh, part of our meetup that comes. There's about uh, I think there's five or six of them every week. The, they're they're paying they're they're playing Pandemic Legacy. Oh, so yeah. that's the one that kind of just uh, it sprung to mind. So restoration games, this whole concept of kind of taking that that rusty old thing and you know giving it a new life. How do you approach? Like I'm just trying to think. Like there's so much out there that's been out of print, right? And yeah. And so have you guys narrowed in on like a certain time period that you, that you like to hit? Is it just kind of anything that was maybe popular that like, how do you, what's the decision process to kind of choose what that title is going to be? It is a little chaotic and always changing. Mm. At first we had we thought we were going to be doing more sort of classic Euro games like Reiner games and Wolfgang yeah. Kramer from the late nineties, early two thousands. And we did downforce, which did okay. But we haven't really gone that way. And I don't know if our audience these days would want to go on that journey with us. Like we may do and we may not, or a heavier Euro. Um, we ended up, we have, if you go to restorationgames.com, there's somewhere on the site, a place where people can submit ideas for games that they want to see restored. So we sort of looked at what people thought we should be doing. And what we discovered, there was a lot of nostalgia for games people played as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, things with batteries, things on commercials, plastic. Mattel, Hasbro, like these big sort of things. And we're like, okay, we can take a crack at those. Because with my background at Hasbro, I'm not afraid of plastics and electronics. I mean, not exactly what I do, but I know at least what the problems are and we have to find people to solve them. Um, we've tended to go a little bit lighter in games, although we've discovered if we go too family weight, people don't tend to buy them as much. It needs to have a little bit of a heft to it. And the we play them and we say like, is there fun here? Mm. Does anyone have an idea for how to make this more fun? And we play dozens of games a year. Most of them, we go, oh, that's cool. Anyone, anyone? A lot of them are like, you know, maybe if we needed something that fit this or there was a license, but no one's inspired to be like, I want to spend a year and a half with a headache over this game because that's what game design is. Yeah, You're signing up for a headache and you're like, oh yeah, but I can see some fun at the end. And um there's myself, Justin, there's marketing, graphics, design. We all sort of have a say. Design tends to play more games and be at the front, but then we run it by other people. Like, we're thinking of these. Like, you know, we get rid of some ones that we think don't work. Mm -hmm. Anybody want to play this? And um, we're kind of in that process right now. We have our next year and a half planned out, and our game line for Unmatched, like, really took off and has taken a lot of our time. But that's sort of a mature brand now. I don't see it growing. Yeah. I like, to think it'll just sustain and then naturally maybe do its thing so we're starting to look for a broader pipeline right now but we've been really focused on that are you guys um, literally going to like sw like swap meets like where do you get the cop like is it usually copies you have in your own collection eBay. yeah eBay will, yeah swap meets ebay bgg or something like that we can find one and you know um but we we've had these big sort of tentpole things like return to dark tower was on there yeah it's no secret we're starting work on Omega Virus with Thunder Road was on there, which just came out and seems to be doing well. People yeah. I mean, the feedback, people are really liking it. It's getting a lot of buzz, which is looks fun. cool. Yeah. yeah, it looks good. And that's always the thing is I probably that was with uh, Dave Chalker and Brett Meyer sort of pitched that to us four years ago. So like I was like business guy at Gen Con. I'm like, I think we can do something here. And then this week as we go, hey, people are having fun. Like it's a long time between you saying like let's do this and then you see people enjoying it you know, oh, yeah. you know, or not enjoying it which is even worse like well that was four years of my life 
Have you had um, a case like that where like you had you guys sure. restored something and it's just uh we did key to the kingdom which came out and didn't particularly do all that well our biggest flop i call it a flop was a game called conspiracy the solomon gamut which is like an early 70s game about intrigue and mystery the game looks fantastic and the graphics team did a good job and it has sort of a quirky different games play style that we thought would be neat because people don't see that anymore but i think it just ended up a little quiet, a little opaque, not really in style, or we didn't market it right, or we didn't, we released it at the wrong time. A lot of times a good game can fail, not because it's a bad game, but because the graphics aren't right, never finds its audience, wasn't marketed, came out the exact same time as a game that got more attention. You know, it, you didn't explain it right. So uh, distributors didn't know how to sell it to retailers. So they mm. just never picked it up. And then it got the stink of no one wants this, you know, even if it was just, the blurb that you wrote is wrong. So there's a lot to do after the gameplay is done. And over my 25 years, I've seen good games die horrible deaths and games where I'm like, why is this popular? Just achieve height. So a good game will usually rise to the top, but not always. And a bad game will usually be a flash in the pan. But it's, I think a lot of game designers, myself included, would just be like, if the game's good, people will play it. First of all, what's good? There's different tastes for everyone. And that's the um, thing I, I always say it's like it's like beer right people say they don't like beer well they haven't tried every beer and i find yeah. board games very similar so, is i'll talk so, to someone that like says, beer. yeah but you talk to somebody who says oh i hate board games because they're used to maybe when they're kids right and playing the games mm -hmm. that were more take that and went on forever and you yeah. know were completely unbalanced and you know okay somebody runs away from the beginning and and then you're you're, you're cooked right so oh, yeah and then you introduce them to a euro, and uh, and they're like, or like a light euro, and they're like, oh, this is actually a lot of fun. I'm playing my game. I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily having somebody pick on me nonstop, right? So, yeah. it's kind of finding that that right fit. As a team, is there ever been a time when, like, one or or a few of you have, um wanted to go with one game, and it's just you can't get the others on board? Like, is there ever that, or are you guys always in sync? probably i don't remember there's a lot of games like maybe i don't know you like it in someone else like i get you know, a game that i played as a kid called pathfinder which was a mm. two-player maze building game from the 70s yeah i love it because i played as a kid and i keep going we should do this i know it's a bad business decision <laughs> right but i keep hoping i have it in my basement or two copies and i'll walk by and go i've got it and somehow make it four player and not expensive and not like a weird battleship feeling sort of thing. And I know it just doesn't make any sense, but I just want to be able to go to my 12-year-old self and be like, hey, I put this game out and people are buying it. So people have passion projects. Yeah. Um, there are games that one or many of us have just worked on for weeks or months and then would go away and come back and then finally we're going, okay, this never caught, right? Off and on for a year, we've been picking at it. We never got it to be good. It never gets prioritize we're going to spend three or four more years picking at it so this is off our group effort anyone who wants to work at it on their own go for it but we're no longer going to try as a team to get this to work and when you're mapping out these games is there kind of the upfront meeting like in your process where you're all kind of kind of put it on the board and say okay let's break this into quadrants you know what can we do mechanically to fix you know to improve the game what can we do graphically to you know to improve the game you know, how are we going to approach the marketing thing? Like, is that, is it that kind of it's, mapped out at all? Or It's never quite that formal. Although our process is getting a little more formal because we've been doing this six or seven years now. So 
Sure. The team's grown, we're learning. And so there is a maturation process that takes place, but not really a quadrant based sort of opportunities and marketing. Mm. But like right now, we had uh, Suzanne Sheldon, who's our marketing person, like write down 10 games you think would be fun to bring back or games you like, even if we're not going to bring them. Don't worry about 20 years, just games that you feel fit our audience. And we sort of looked at those and did a ranking of them. And then you talk about things like, oh, it's a racing game. Well, we've got Downforce and we have Thunder Road. We don't need another racing game. Or this game is pretty cool, but in order to make it cool, it would be $80 to by today's standards for all the plastic yeah. and this and that. And, you know, plays in 20 minutes. No one's going to pay $80 for it. So a lot of things get taken off because, you know, oh, it only plays two. It would cost too much. It would take too long. Like someone got really excited about a game. I think it was Suzanne and I and in our Slack. And I just went to BGG and highlighted gameplay. And it was like 300 minutes. And I just, my only response was like average gameplay, 300, like a five hour game. And she's like, oh, yep, fair enough. She's like, how much do you think you could bring that down? I'm like, not to like an hour and a half, right? Yeah. I think people who like this game and want to play this game want a lengthy experience. So it's like, do we want a hundred dollar game that plays for five hours? And we're like, oh boy, no. What is the sweet spot for you guys? Is it a like an hour, hour and a half type? type an game? hour to two hour. Um, we tend to, and this is my influence, and I can see some people getting tired. I, I tend to want games as I get older. I'm like, I want lighter games. I want games with a hook. Yeah. I want not quite a pop song throwaway game, but I want a game that uh you just get into right away and you play it. And, you know, it's not like by your eighth turn, eighth time playing, you figured out how to get this alternate scoring thing to be maximized. These are wonderful games and I will play them. Um, I just, we're, we're a company that puts a lot of love into our games. We spend start to finish too much time yeah. <laughs> on the art, the marketing, the production, the little, like for Dinosaur Tea Party, one of our little games, we came up with two custom recipes to serve at your tea party when you play and like tested the recipes. Like we, these are labors of love. And I'm like, That's we're doing cool. a labor of love on a game that is incredibly complex with a ton of components. Uh, we're never getting it out the door. Or by the time we do, we, if you added up how much time it took, we like, we lost money. We could have made two smaller games there. So there's a lot of business decisions to come in other than it's fun. Yeah. But certainly I think that that labor of love that you mentioned is, it's on brand, right? Like when I when I think of again a great analogy, restoration of cars, right? And I think it's mm -hmm. brilliant the branding you guys have in terms of restoration games. Um, but you think like re people to restore cars, right? There's a lot of love that goes into that and wanting to kind of bring something you know into the current era that maybe is you know time hasn't been kind to it. And if they add up all their time they put into it, often you know it's a money losing. Of, adventure yeah. right so it's kind of how do you how do you quantify the love part of it that you're putting into it and is that a cost or is it a benefit right like because like it's, some things it's a, it's a mix i mean we have 10 yeah. people on payroll right at some point you do like, <laughs> like okay. i will get to a point where we're talking about like should we do this or do it i go do we want to reclassify as a nonprofit? yeah Right. Like it, yeah. it's hard to say, like, I want to make these great things, but sometimes I'm just like, like we're, we have um an expansion for return to dark tower coming out this summer that we had kickstarted last year. And we're doing some of the, the new quests and the new digital components that will go with it. And so, you know, we're like talking about one particular 
adversary, if they're with this ally and you do this and this dungeon, then what should this name be? And then what if this room is second? And like we were talking about it and I'm all excited for like 15 minutes about like this little conundrum we have. And then I went, hey, back of the math, you know, back of the envelope math here says that this situation is going to come up one out of 10,000 times, which is about how many games we sold. So one person once may hit this. And it's not even like it breaks the game. We're just trying to figure out if A is better or B is better. So yeah. there's one person out there who is going to benefit from this. And we've spent 25 minutes talking about it. And everyone's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, good point, right? So that's how we can fall into sort of this thing. And it's not saying we're going to phone it in or do stuff, but we can get way down and try to make every single person who buys every single game have an experience which is interesting and unique and different and amazing down to like the granular level, like, and um, I like that we do it, but that last 10%, we have to be careful of because then it's like, oh, the game's six weeks late, which means this game didn't start, which means that will be three months late, which means we'll put out one fewer game next year. And now yeah. our estimate for money just went down by this much. There's definitely an effort reward kind of component that comes in at that last 10%, I guess, right? Yeah. And I'm just listening to myself talk. Me of 25 years ago would be horrified with me <laughs> of now. It's like, just make a great game. You know, it's like, that's when I didn't pay the bills, right? That's when it was the Hasbro paying the bills. And I could, yeah, exactly. Just it's always easier when someone else is yeah. paying the bills. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, business trips, you know, it's like I go on a business trip. It's like the company pays for it. I'm like, it's this pocket instead of this pocket. It's just, it's just my money still. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's definitely a different beast when you have a company paying the bills. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to stay like the hotel you choose, the car you rent, right? All this is, uh, it's it, when when it's coming out of your pocket, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's a very different, uh, different approaches as well. Um, I want to kind of get into, if if I may, the the licensing part of it because I find this incredibly interesting. How do you go about securing the licenses? Right. So you've got this game, and is that how early in the process is that uh, for you guys in terms of before you spend any time on it at all? Do you go and find out if if, if it's possible to get the license, or do you do a little bit of investigation first, or how do you how do you approach that? We spend very little time before we get the license. Justin, as the yeah. lawyer in the group, does most of the the licensing arrangements. And there's a whole half hour show on how to get a license and you know, yeah. advances and royalties and everything. Um, but where we're like, oh, we think this license would be good. Is it even available? Do we think it would like? So there's some initial inquiries. Like if they say like, yes, it, you know, your initial email says we'd be willing to talk about this because door can be closed right there. They might say, oh, Fantasy Flight already has that. Yeah, where we don't do board games, then we spend. There's a little delicate balance, as little time as possible, coming up with an idea that may not pass. But we're about to propose something to them, so if they say we love it, we don't then want to turn around and get in the weeds and do Costco. Oh, we're not going to make any money, so you want to do just enough so you could say like, okay, we think this would be an eighty dollar game. It's going to have a lot of pieces, and we can do some initial estimates based on team experience to be like, yeah, we can make this for $80. Now we don't have to promise 80 yet, but we don't want it to be 200. And mm. we think we'll sell about this many. And if their royalty rate is about this much, then we should be good. And we write up a proposal. We have one out to a, a, a licensor right now. And then it's kind of just taking from our schedule feels like a long time. It's not a couple of weeks or something, but we're starting yeah. to be like, okay, if they say no, do we like the game enough to do it with a different license or without a license in our own IP? So we're starting to look for plan Bs here. Now they come back today and just say, yeah, we love it. Go. 
or it could be like two months from now, they're like, we have questions and, you know, and then you're negotiating for six more months and then our whole schedule gets blown up and things push out a year. So being a publisher has a lot of business decisions. Oh yeah. It's literally right. Running a business, right. And yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. Yeah. Is there with, with, with the licensing, uh, especially since when you're going back to games like 60s, 70s and so forth is there's gotta be cases where you guys come across, um, like an IP you're looking at and you're like, this is great. Who owns the license to this game? Oh like, yeah. And, and everyone is different and every game is yeah. different. often BGG will come through and say, this designer was the designer of record of this game and they may not be alive. Yeah. And we have to try to find their kids. Like we've used a private investigator to try to track down things. We've sometimes had a designer die and we can't find anyone there. So we just said, okay, we're just going to escrow a royalty. And just, yeah, and, 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 just and, wait. So they, and then yeah. you know, th their kids did say, hey, this is our dad's game. Like, you, we we're like, great, we couldn't find you. This It was a card game. It didn't sell that many. We've got $9,000. And I think what we ended up doing is we can give it to you. Or do you want to pick a charity your dad would have liked? And we'll make a charitable donation of this amount. And I think they picked the charitable donation there. I mean, it was maybe $4,000 or something and yeah. split amongst three adult kids. They weren't going to be retiring on it and they thought it would be nice to donate it to a charity um that's crazy so they actually found you so i just let me just jump i want to uh, this is interesting yeah. so, so you guys couldn't find who, like the person that passed you couldn't find the, the license holder so you went ahead with the game anyways and for those who are wondering what you mean by escrow is you take whatever the normal royalty is you'd be paying and you kind of put that in an account off to the side right and you let mm -hmm. that accrue and then if someone comes forward at some point, then you can say, well, here's the money we've accrued. So they then reached out to you, the kids, and said, hey, wait a second. This is my dad's game. Is that how that kind of went Yeah, down? he had died. And I, I I, think the kids were all like my age, you know, like 50s yeah, yeah. or something. And someone said, hey, I think this is your dad's game that just came out. And we were like, great. Thank you. Right. Like we we couldn't find you and we didn't know if anyone owned it. And it's actually it was a game. It was our game. Um indulgence which had been dragon master under milton bradley which is the guy who done it but it was based on a game called coup d'etat which is a public domain domain game in the 20s so we're like we don't even know if we're redoing the 20s game or the 80s game which this person had put to like we're not even sure the royalties are owed here because he did a game based on a public domain game and we're doing it based on the same game but kind of inspired by him so maybe some of the mechanisms are his and we're like we'll just do the right thing and put yeah. the money off to the side and uh, it was a $20 card game and it didn't sell that many. So again, the royalties were were relatively small. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's owned by a corporation and and no one knows who it came to. It's like any games I designed at Hasbro, I don't own. Hasbro sort of owns. So Justin does some lawyer magic behind the scenes. And there's some games we wanted to get that we can't get and some games that, you know, we have to be, I don't want to say clever. You just have to be diligent, right? You have to understand laws and IP laws and things like that. And, yeah. And do, and do your homework like we did with indulgence and sort of be like, okay, we've searched as much as we can search and here's what we're going to do. Um, I don't want to say to protect ourselves as a, to do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. We, I'm a designer. I never want to be like, Hey, we ripped someone off. Ha ha. Yeah, and I think in in the case like uh, with the, this card game with the family coming forward, that, that's got to be such a feeling, right? To see something that was a passion project of your parent that you know you thought was a blip in time, and here it is. It, you know, it's getting a new life, and other people are going to get a chance to enjoy it, right? Like that's got to be forty years later. Yeah. yeah.
Oh, it's amazing. So for, for you, like you've got restoration games, you've got your own uh, design you're doing. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what's kind of coming next or what the next thing uh, is? It's a really interesting uh, time right now. Like I said, for the restoration, we're, I'm not going to talk about anything because Suze will kill me. <laughs> and that's fine. Uh, we have coming for people who back Thunder Road, you should have it. There seems to be some people who feel a little left out. So we're trying to figure out, um, do we make more? Do we make, because some expansions are only available on the Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, so we're looking into that, but it always takes between looking into it and getting it to people about a year. Um, Return to Dark Tower will be shipping soon. Um, we have another Kickstarter we're going to be announcing soonish. Um, let's see, we have unmatched sets. Uh, we ended up doing five Marvel sets, which wasn't the plan to do five Marvel sets. It was just, this was the plan in 2018 with a different company. And then the pandemic hit, I don't know if you read the news, but yeah. that kind of disrupted a whole bunch of things. So they ended up coming, falling into our lap and coming out later. And, and then we thought, so we have our, do our fifth one is coming out there. And then we have, uh, a, a Japanese themed one called Sun, Sun's Origin coming out in the fall. We have a cooperative unmatched that will be launching, fulfilling for Kickstarter in August. We were hoping to get it for Gen Con, but I think doing the Kickstarter actually delayed us three weeks. And that's all it took because we had to do the Kickstarter. And 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 so we won't have it for sale at Gen Con, maybe. Um, for me personally, uh, I have a Dungeons and Dragons game called Warriors of Kryn that came out uh, bundled with the game last fall, but is available wow. now. Uh, as its own standalone game and then releasing this friday simon has a stranger things game i did called stranger things upside down which is two different there's season one on one side of the board and season two on the other side of the board and i got another uh for non-restoration i have another announcement that will be coming out within a month oh wow so you're a busy guy (laughs) i am but it's honestly a lot of stuff that i did from the pandemic that all got delayed and then all clumped together yeah, it's usually how it yeah. goes. Eh? Yeah, yeah, it was it was all separated out and things were supposed to be out in 2020, one, two, and three, and then it just shh. so wow. Well, Rob, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. And I, I'd love to have you come back. I mean, there's so much to dig into, like we'd even scratch the surface, man. This has been this has been fantastic. Well, I'm very happy to come back. I mean, like I said, I've been doing it 25 years. I work for large corporations, I co-own a publisher, I've been an independent designer. I've probably done some other things. I've been a professor, right, of game design. So I've I've managed, like, you just put your head down and start working, and then you turn around and you're like, oh, I have a white beard, and it's been 25 <laughs> years. Like, that just goes pretty quickly. Maybe next time we'll restore you, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. All right, sir. All the best. You take care. All right. Bye. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley. Produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.